The politicians and statesmen scouted the woman who had presumed to criticize so freely the constitution and government of her country. Women had better let politics alone. One Bostonian proudly refused to read the appeal because he feared it would make him an abolitionist. Another threw the book out the window with a pair of tongs. I think what must have hurt most was the juvenile miscellany from which Child was forced to resign in 1834 after angry parents canceled their subscription in droves. Child would find herself shielding abolitionist speakers with her body, spiriting them out of the city and hiding them in safe houses. Through it all, neither she nor her husband would make enough money to keep them solvent. And yet violence and poverty would not be the greatest challenges to her conversion. She could not have known this, but the end of slavery was still 30 years away. Nothing threatens a conversion like delayed change. Life gets in the way. Old habits get in the way. Failure and discouragement and defeat get in the way. Never living the same way again, it would turn out would be the challenge of Lydia Mariah Child's life. Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life, a new book by another Lydia, which is interesting enough in and of itself, Lydia Moland, who is a professor of philosophy at Colby College and who will be doing a virtual event with Historic Northampton this Wednesday at 7 p.m. if you go to historicnorthampton.org. Tell us more about Lydia Mariah Child. So Lydia Mariah Child was born in 1802 in Medford, Massachusetts, and she was born to a baker and his wife uh, who did not value education and especially not for girls. But she had an older brother who loved books and she got really into reading as a young woman and turned into an incredibly prolific writer as someone kind of in her mid-20s. So by the time she was in her mid-20s, she was something almost unheard of in the American 19th century, which was a self-sufficient female author. So she'd written a couple of novels. She'd written some very popular children's fiction, including she was editing something called the Juvenile Miscellany. It, it was a periodical and it had games and puzzles and short stories and nonfiction and fiction, popular up and down the East Coast. And then in 1829, she'd published something called The Frugal Housewife, which was one of the first American self-help books and a cookbook um, that was, again, very popular. People remembered into middle age what additions their mothers had had. So by the time she was, by 1829, she was a beloved and popular author. But in 1830, she met a man named William Lloyd Garrison, who was just then spearheading a white abolitionist movement that was building on the foundation that Black abolitionists had built in Boston. And he recruited Child because he knew what a good author she was and what a popular, almost household name she was. So he recruited her, he converted her to abolitionism, which was at that point the belief that slavery should end immediately and without compensation to enslaved slavers. This was an incredibly radical position for that time. Many Northerners generally disapproved of slavery, but didn't really think they should do anything about it and were being encouraged by politicians and religious leaders to just leave well enough alone. But Child, once she became an abolitionist, was convinced that slavery needed to end immediately, and she decided to sacrifice her reputation as a beloved children's author and domestic author to try to convert more people to abolitionism. So she spent three years between 1830 and 1833, researching and writing a book called An Appeal in Favor of That Class of Americans Called Africans. And it's a kind of fire hose of denunciation of all of the arguments that Northerners, white Northerners had been using to justify enslavement and not to care about it. And then in the last 
chapter, she sort of wheels her cannon around and points it at her own hometown and says to Northerners, while we express our earnest disapprobation of the system of slavery, let us not flatter ourselves that we are any better than our brethren in the South. So that she cites Northern fortunes that had been built on slavery, but also um, Northern racism that allowed slavery to continue in the South. As you can imagine, this is not what white Northerners wanted to hear from her. They they were fine taking tips on how to get rid of bed bugs or cure dysentery, <laughs> stories to read to their children. They did not want to be told that they were complicit in slavery. So there was an enormous backlash against Child as an author. What is so fascinating about this story and how it resonates with contemporary culture, we're hearing about the first known evidence of cancel culture, perhaps, where somebody who is beloved for one thing does something contrary to what is expected of them, and there is a backlash. I'm trying to think of who the best contemporary analog would be. I can think of a lot of people who are canceled, perhaps for good reasons. Maybe it's Mark Hamill, who is Luke Skywalker and is a hero to a generation of nerds, but who will go to town on Twitter on all sorts of right-wing politics, blowing the minds of many, perhaps a white middle-aged man. Do you Have you found contemporary analogs that you th- think remind you of Lydia Mariah Child that have been canceled because of their more liberal-leaning beliefs? Well, I think there are certainly lots of examples of colleagues of mine, for instance, who have been on Twitter expressing liberal beliefs, who have had you know hordes of Twitter people attack them and accuse them all kind of, of all kinds of things and tried to get them fired. Um, that kind of thing happens, I think, with some frequency. But also, I think we could talk about the reaction to the 1619 Project or to other kinds of attempts to reckon with enslavement in our history now. So all of the things that are happening on school boards where people are are trying to forbid people from talking about enslavement in our history as a way of, I guess, protecting their children from feeling badly about parts of our slavery, of our history that we should feel badly about. But I, I think you're absolutely right. I sometimes say she was the 19th century equivalent of canceled for this, and her career never really recovered. Coming up, more with author Lydia Moland about her new book about Lydia Mariah Child, canceled for her abolitionist beliefs in the mid-19th century, but famous for one particular reason that you've probably heard, writing the only Thanksgiving song? I found in Child someone who really is helping me think about how I need to live a better life as well and calling myself out in ways that I'm complicit in all kinds of things that I don't think about or don't notice because I assume I'm a good person. And I think that's something Child was really good at doing is saying to people, I know you think you're on the right side of history, but let me just tell you a couple of bad arguments that you're using to justify your continued complicity in things that are obviously unjust. I'm speaking with author Lydia Moland about her book, Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life. Lydia Moland will be in conversation with Historic Northampton via Zoom this Wednesday. It's radical enough that she is such a public figure and author at that time that's at the forefront of a movement with names of people that we have heard in regards to this movement before, like Garrison, like John Brown. And yet the only thing that most people might know that Lydia Mariah Child 
world did, until they read your book, of course, Lydia Mullen, <laughs> is what? Over the river and through the wood to grandmother's house we go. She wrote that poem in the 1840s. She would have been shocked to know that that was the one <laughs> thing of hers that people would remember. I mean, the, the thing is that most people don't even know she wrote it, but they can recite it. Right. It's like and, the only Thanksgiving and, song there is. Exactly. It's been stuck in my head for about five years now <laughs> as I've been writing this book. So I'm good and sick of it. Um, but the irony of the fact that she spent 50 years authoring some of the most enduring and radical arguments against not just slavery, but racial injustice in this country, but instead is famous for one of the most sentimental poems we have. That irony would not have been lost on her. <laughs> That's why you should be careful what you put on social media, kids, because you never know what you're going to get remembered for. <laughs> like poor Lydia Mariah Child dedicated her life to abolitionism and sacrificed a great deal of her status because of it. And again, was a woman in the middle part of the 19th century that's leading this movement and is inspirational to these figures, tried to rescue John Brown from prison before he was executed. Tell us that story. Yeah, that's an amazing story. So Child was what was called a non-resistant abolitionist, which meant that she did not think that violence or even force should be used at all. But when John Brown launched this attempted insurrection against slavery in Virginia, she was very moved by it and moved by the fact that he and his men, which included five black men, were willing to sacrifice their lives uh, to try to end slavery. And so she wrote to John Brown, who miraculously had survived this raid and was in prison in Virginia, offering to come and nurse him as he awaited trial and execution. And then she wrote to the governor of Virginia asking for his permission to come and visit Brown, which you have to admit was pretty audacious. <laughs> she was the kind of person that Southerners blamed for inspiring Brown to thinking that he should start this insurrection. It's a fascinating story about an underappreciated hero in the abolition movement, Lydia Mariah Child. A Radical American Life is the name of the book by Lydia Moland, who is a professor at Colby College and who'll be doing a virtual event through Historic Northampton this Wednesday at 7 p.m. HistoricNorthampton.org for more information. And Historic Northampton uh, was helpful in the creation of this book, both with different types of illustrations and working with the David Ruggles Center and the, the historical communities that we have, the abolitionist communities surrounding Sojourner Truth and more in the Florence area of Northampton. However, what I love and which resonates still to this day with what Lydia Mariah Child, what happened to her when she came to Northampton, this bastion of liberalism, she was disenchanted with the white people in regards to how committed they really were to this cause. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so this is a fascinating Northampton story from beginning to end. So I have to give a little bit of background about how she ended up in Northampton at all. Mm. And this is because she was married to a man named David Lee Child, who, who did a lot of things. He was a publisher and an editor and a lawyer. But he and Child were both totally dedicated to doing anything they could to undermine slavery. And at a certain point, after it became clear that argument alone was not convincing enough people by the end of the 1830s, someone got the idea that people should try to undermine the cane sugar plantation trade by making sugar out of sugar beets. Now, this had never been done in the United States, but it had been done in Europe. And so there was a company that sent David Child, Lydia Mariah Child's husband, to Europe to learn how to make sugar out of sugar beets. 
he returned with the expertise and the equipment necessary and decided to move to Northampton to do it. They rented a place on what's now Elm Street in the Duckett House on the Smith College campus and tried this entrepreneurial experiment. I'm afraid it did not go well. <laughs> uh, they did succeed in making sugar out of beets, but they couldn't figure out how to do it at enough of a profit. To get people to switch from cane sugar to beet sugar, you know, a pantry staple took an enormous amount of just marketing and convincing and packaging that they just weren't in a position to do. So they unfortunately ultimately went bankrupt. But when they moved to Northampton, it was in the name of trying to undermine slavery economically. So they got there and yes, Child had hopes that she would find a kind of abolitionist base there, some abolitionist sympathizers. And instead what she found was a pretty conservative, pretty what she felt like was a backwaters attitude towards certainly slavery, but also racial equality. And she spent some pretty lonely and discouraging years in Northampton. When they first moved there, I think people were kind of excited. Here is this famous author and sort of scandalous author who was arriving in Northampton to do what? To farm sugar beets? <laughs> so they, there was a lot of interest about that. But then once it became clear that she was going to use whatever social connections she could make to argue for abolitionism, then people were not as excited to see her. Like I said, it's a fascinating story. And if you want to learn more about Lydia Mariah Child, you have an opportunity this Wednesday through historic Northampton Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical Life, a Zoom presentation by Professor Lydia Moland. Thank you so much for this book and thanks for taking so much time with me. Thank you for the interview. I really enjoyed it. You can hear more about the work of Lydia Mariah Child in Northampton and her attempt to free an enslaved person on Main Street in Northampton. You go to WRSI.com. Northampton in this period was also a favorite vacationing spot for Southerners who would bring the people that they enslaved with them to Massachusetts, to Northampton. Now, there had been a really important court case in Massachusetts just a couple of years before the child's move there, which ruled that uh, although Southerners had a constitutional right to have their people, the people they enslaved, return to them if they escaped. So if an enslaved person escaped and ran to the North, Northerners had a constitutional obligation to help return that enslaved person to the South. But if Southerners brought the people that they enslaved voluntarily with them into the North, those enslaved people could decide to leave their enslavers and establish a new life in the North. This was a kind of loophole for slaves brought North that meant that if they wanted to, this was their chance to emancipate themselves. So there was a case exactly like this in Northampton while the childs were there. There was a woman named Mrs. Gasden who was staying in the same house that the childs were living. And she brought a woman named Rosa, who was a slave of hers, and child got to know Rosa and indeed started to inform her that if she wanted to stay in Massachusetts, she could. And Rosa wanted to. She did not want to go back to South Carolina where she'd been enslaved. But the problem was that she had children still enslaved in South Carolina. And so the question became, was she willing to abandon her children for a life of freedom in the North or did she feel like she had to return? Now, the bitter irony of this is that even in returning to the South, there was no guarantee that Rosa could keep her children because her children could be sold by the people who enslaved them at any given time. 
But she certainly knew that if she didn't go back, she would never see her children again. So Child tried to help with that. She tried to contact people in South Carolina to convince them to emancipate the children. It just didn't work. And finally, after you know a long time of going back and forth, she watched Rosa get into a stagecoach on Main Street in Northampton to return to enslavement. And nobody knows what happened to her. She's you know one of the many many people who's who just fade out of recorded history because we don't we can't trace them. And, and so this was a kind of wrenching moment of failure for Child. And it, what's more much more important. A, wrenching decision for Rosa, which then her owners treated as a moment of triumph over the abolitionists because they could point to Rosa and say, see, she could have stayed in the North. She chose to return to the South. Therefore, slavery can't be as bad as the abolitionists are saying. So, so it was almost like slaves like Rosa were used as weapons in these tensions between Southerners who were bringing um, their slaves to Massachusetts and abolitionists who were trying to take the opportunity to help them establish free lives. And again, that story has resonance now where I can think of several people who it seems may be being used as a puppet of sorts to push forth a particular agenda. And it's horrible. Absolutely. This book is yeah. sadly far too relevant, but incredible and very well written, very fun to read. 